Good afternoon, you are listening to Residence 104.4 FM and this is Art Then and Now with me, your host, Anna Gammons. This is the show where each week we look at art from the past and art from the present to understand how we as humans have expressed ourselves through time. Now, this week was a real treat for me because I think I probably mentioned on the show before that I absolutely adore Japan. It's one of the best places I've ever been to. If you have been fortunate enough to have visited Japan, or maybe you lived in Japan for a bit, then you will understand what we're talking about when when we say how beautiful the culture is there, how wonderful the people are. And my interviewee today is Ellie Burkett and she works with paper and has a really wonderful interest in how paper works, what we can use paper for, the history of paper. And she has spent a lot of time in Japan learning how to make paper, different paper techniques in different provinces of Japan and different areas. And as you will hear, she has even had contact with the last traditional paper maker in the Fukushima region of Japan and that's a it's really really exciting to talk to Ellie about what she does she's so passionate about it and it was a real pleasure to be able to hear her talk about something that I don't really know anything about but as I said have such a love of Japan so enjoy my interview with Ellie Burkett where we talk about paper and the history of the beautiful beautiful country that is Japan. Good afternoon. I am here with Ellie Burkett, who is an artist and educator and works specifically using paper. Hi, Ellie. Hello, nice to be here. Nice to be chatting to you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, Ellie and I spoke on the phone just before this interview and there is so much to talk about. There's so many interesting things to say and I'm excited to learn some new things as well. I'm going to launch straight in by giving some context to the listeners about your work. Can you speak a little bit about your practice for the listeners? My practice actually started with a textile that had been passed down in the family, um, a beautiful dress that had belonged to my grandfather. But it had a a very sad story. So I was captivated by the way this dress had got more than just the meaning of the the beautiful object it was, but it had a a family history connected to it um, because my grandfather's brother, Albert, had died in infancy. So the, the prints, the collages and the textiles I produced were kind of based on this very delicate rosebud pattern. So the actual design had a deeper meaning um, and the fragility and the the sense of loss was came through the, the patching, the tearing, the layering, the stitching. They all became metaphors for a, an incomplete story or um, a family narrative which the garment represented. So some of my work is about unpicking the story behind a textile or an object, and some of it is connected to place, and some of it is is about um, just a process. But your your interest in paper as a medium is so intrinsic to your work as an artist. Where did your passion develop for for paper? Well, my involvement in um, paper as a textile medium started when I was a student at Goldsmiths College, and I spent a lot of time in the print department. And it was through the print department that I went on a visit to Haley Mill in Kent, a hand papermaking factory that no longer exists. But the fact that um, handmade watercolour paper is made from rags was the key to my interest in paper because I loved the fact that depending on the materials, the paper is either a textile or a, or a paper, what we conventionally know as a paper. You have to have a, a frame, a mould and a decal, but the mould is really just the sieve through which the pulp drains. 
And so that, that, that can be part of the paper. Um, it can be a loose weave so that you get holes in the paper. Um, you can dry paper on um, three-dimensional surfaces. So you get a, a kind of um, cast, a paper cast. It can be either very fragile or very soft. It can be something that you stitch into or that you paint onto or print onto. So it was it, it sort of unlocked a whole... Um, whole avenues of investigation and the investigation was really just by being involved in the process pushing the boundaries of what a material could do has really been central to um, my investigation then and it's carried on and I think that's why I was so excited to talk to you because this seemingly innocuous material actually becomes something quite amazing can you talk the listeners through how you then go on to use it in your work I use bought papers I recycle, I, I use found objects. I'm like a, I'm like a child who, who gets more excited by the wrappings and the cardboard and the things that, the salvaged materials. Um, and I just see what I can do with them, how I can put them together. It's kind of the vehicle for my ideas because I often don't have a clear idea of where I'm going with the work, but the process will dictate the outcome. Sometimes they end up as... I don't like the word collage, but assemblages. <laughs> um, and sometimes they're, they're things that are, are stitched into with paper thread. Sometimes they are three-dimensional. Often they look fragile, but they're quite robust. Sometimes they look like leather. Sometimes they almost look like porcelain. It depends on the nature of the materials that I'm using at the time. Recently, I've been doing quite a lot with trying to get paper to become three-dimensional. Or if you fold paper, it has a memory. When you roll paper, it, it stays rolled. Or if you crumple it, it stays crumpled. You can manipulate it. I love that you said that it's a vehicle for ideas. We use paper to write novels. We use paper to draw on. We use paper to advertise. We use paper to package things. Like It really is in our lives in every way so I thought that was a really nice way of, of describing your relationship with paper now this is where the excitement really kicks off for me because I absolutely adore Japan and I know you spent many years living in Japan and you learned traditional techniques and processes please please tell me more about that the interest in paper as a fabric started at, at Goldsmiths but I remember key moments one of them was being in the library at Goldsmiths and finding a book about Japan and realising that there was a, a culture where paper was central to their homes, their, their culture and their re- religion. And so it was, it was na- a natural desire to want to go to Japan. It was quite a, a, quite a journey, but eventually I did end up going to Fukushima in um, northern Japan. Yeah. And quite by chance, it was a traditional centre of paper making. There were two areas, a place called Shuroishi, which is quite famous for paper textiles, and an area called Kamikawasaki, which is more tradition of farmers making paper in the winter. Both of them had traditions ranging back a thousand years. And while I was in Fukushima, I was a a student at Fukushima Women's Junior College, but my two teachers would take me out to visit these household industries. I do remember the first time I saw paper textiles, the crushed paper, which is called kamiko, and the um, woven paper thread, which is called shifu. Mm. And both these traditions 
go back a long time, thought, this is what I'm interested in. I initially went to Japan thinking I could be apprenticed to a papermaker, but I realised that that was uh, not going to happen and was a bit naive. So instead, I absorbed a lot of cultural references and especially to do with paper and fabric. Um, I was um, taken to uh, dyeing, indigo dyeing centres, um, to places where they um, emboss paper. It's, it's really treated, handled very roughly. The, the paper is hammered into a, a wooden block so it picks up the um, embossed yeah. design. We, we always think of paper as being something quite weak. Mm. So it, was, it was a whole different um, experience. And I learnt I that the paper that I saw was very much connected to a place. So the fact that in Tohoku it was very, very cold winters and the fact that the, um, the mountain water was very pure, um, the, the cold, harsh winters actually were part of the, the strength of the paper because the fibres were stronger because of the cold. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's just like a small bush, um, probably three metres three meters high. Um, and the, the, the inner bark is white, and then you have an outer bark. Um, it's got three layers. So the outer bark would be used for um, our equivalent of brown paper and be sent off to um, uh, households that made um, folk craft dolls, um, and they would kind of form them around a mould. And then the, the, the purer paper, the whiter paper, would be the paper that was made in the, in the coldest time of the year, the inner bark. And so many processes involved that it's, it's understandable that you know, young people didn't want to kind of carry on this tradition. So a lot of the craftspeople that I met were were in their 80s. Well, at the time they weren't, but they are now in their 80s. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the traditional techniques that you that you learned while you were in there. And, and they're also, as you said, specific to province. So yes. can you talk yes. a little bit about that? So in, in Shiroishi, they have a woven paper cloth, which is called shifu, and in, in 1955, it was designated as an intangible cultural property. Um, and basically, a, a, a particular paper with the fibres running in one direction is folded and slashed and rubbed on a stone, which is quite surprising. It's also um, dampened overnight, which again is surprising because you'd think it would break. Um, rubbed on a stone sort of I, I see it as a kind of felting process so that the fibers start to run along the, the slash of the paper and so as the paper is torn at the margins you it creates one long continuous thread and that is then woven into um, fabric either combined with cotton warp and a paper weft or sometimes um, both warp and weft are made of paper. So that was one technique. It came from a tradition of poverty because the farmers had to make clothes from the materials available to them. And they, in the winter, they were um, the farmers were paper makers in the cold winter months from kind of November to February. And then they, but they had to wear, they weren't allowed, there were sumptuary laws and they weren't allowed to wear certain, certain fabrics. So they used paper to make their garments. And the other garment that was um, 
made in this particular area and, and lots of other papermaking areas, but is particularly kind of, um, is particularly prized in Shirobishi is crushed paper. Um, and so a thicker piece of paper with, with the fibers running in both directions for strength is crushed and it's treated with persimmon juice, which is, uh, which waterproofs the paper. Um, it's, uh, it also dyes the paper as lovely um, warm brown. And that would have been used for raincoats and for, uh, and had an insulating property. And then the other area that I went to is a place called Kamikawasaki. And um, I met, there were about, only about eight households making paper. And in the past, there had been 300. So there, there was a kind of time, a golden age. And when I went in, in the 1980s, there were about eight paper making households. And then seven years later, when I made a further visit, there were only three. And then when I returned last year, because I went back for a trip last year, there was only one and he's just retired. It's like you've got these very important, they, they, the, the traditions found their way to Kyoto through the, um, the daimyo having to make their visits to the capital. Um, and the, so those farming techniques were refined and actually appropriated by the elite. They were also appropriated by monks, who liked the idea of the, the kind of aesthetic of paper. Your personal practice, so the work that you that you make now as, as a creator, do you sort of carry that cultural significance with you? How do you take inspiration for what you do now? Is it very much rooted in Japan? Since I visited last year, it's kind of rejuvenated aspects of my interest. I've always been interested in materials um, and process, but it's it's made me reassess how I can use either paper from Japan which I've got a whole stash of or how I can um, somehow respond to it in a different way myself so I see it as a kind of pairing and a dialogue some of my work is is wanting to just um, respond to that tradition but in a different way in, in the way that that is to do with with me and my time and my interest and my background. So it's a kind of dialogue between uh, Western tradition and Eastern tradition. Since I came back, I had a kind of compulsion to find out more about the history and just finding out more generates ideas for my work. Just to give you an example, the, the crushed paper which was used for garments in Shiroishi and other papermaking areas, is called kamiko. But in the past, it used to be known as kamikinu, which means paper silk. Right. Just that word, finding out just that word in my research, has wanting, you know, I'm wanting to now combine silk with paper and to really see how... I can um, take the seductive qualities of one material and relate it to another. I do want to quickly touch upon the fact that you've been in contact with one of the last Fukushima paper makers. Is that right? So interesting and exciting and um, profound. How, how did that go? Last year, when I went back to Fukushima, I wanted to revisit places that I'd been to before. And so I, I wanted to go back to this place, Kamikawasaki, and my um, Japanese friend who was 
kindly interpreting for me, she was able to make contact with this papermaker who came from that village. He had just retired from papermaking in a what I would term was a, a heritage centre. It had a paper shop and then it had a papermaking area. And the, the way he was making the paper in, in the centre was along traditional lines. And um, so I was able to meet him and he talked me through the process. It was amazing. He showed me um, paper for, from 40 years old. He talked about his family history. He's from a sixth generation of paper makers. Um, and he subsequently has sent me um, a bundle of papers, which I, I have here. Oh, my goodness. They arrived. Oh, wow. This is paper. I'm going to describe for the listeners. It, it almost looks like tree bark. It's thick and it's got these sort of geometric design on it almost. It's paper that's been crushed and just dip dyed in walnut dye. And then the, 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 the paper has been opened and re-dyed. So you get the sort of puddling and, and the stronger, stronger dye in certain parts. He also has given me access to his, his archive material, which includes an eight millimeter film footage from 1958, and then 30 amazing black and white photographs from probably the 1950s. He's been so generous. It's, it's almost like he's, he's so excited that people out there are interested because yeah. in Japan, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's quite a specialist area and people are not aware of the long history of the tradition in that area. I think he hopes that I will use his paper, but it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how are you going to chop it up? It's so lovely. <laughs> I have used some of his plain paper, but it's, 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 my work's becoming very minimal because the intervention that I want to, to, to do has to allow the paper to speak for itself as well. Mm. So it might be just a tiny fold or a, a, an ink mark. It's like a collaboration, really, because his work in itself is something that I want to put on the wall, just as it is. Yeah. Now, I want to talk, what, what current projects are you doing at the moment? I mean, my, my world has changed like everyone else's. So I um, did quite a bit of writing and research. And I also had some... Techniques changed because I had um, access to different things. So I set up a print table in the kitchen. Then as soon as I could, I went back to the studio. And I've been making paper vessels using fragments of old script. So in this in this centre, this heritage centre, they were selling packs. They were actually tearing up old books that are about 150 years old. <laughs> You know, I just want these papers to be shown in yeah, some way. extend the life cycle. And, and... Yeah. and because of the um, tsunami, the earthquake and the terrible nuclear disaster, I kind of see them as a, a tribute to the, the rich tradition, the crafts of the area, but also as a, it's the only thing I can do to kind of celebrate one side but also it's important to me that it is paper from Fukushima that I'm using mm. next year is the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima earthquake and so some of these paper vessels that I've been making embody the fragility of the area they're, they're, they're almost like a prayer or a tribute 
I wanted to make 40 vessels. I wanted this feeling of there being a lot of them. Um, and also it's 40 years since I first went and saw this paper. And the other thing that I've been involved in the other project is using fragments of paper kites. So my friend um, Jenny, who came to Japan for six months with me, she went to a kite festival in Shirone. And she, basically the kites are huge, massive, but they're not meant to last. They have a, a kite fight over two sides of a river. What? And the kites <laughs> end up in the river or fragments of them end up on the towpath. So she collected and scavenged fragments of kites, some of them quite big. And I think she, kept, well, she, I know she came back with a, with a, a complete kite for me, which I've, I've got. But I've been wanting to piece together these fragments. Because they've been in a box for so long, they are still vibrant colours, red, yellow, blue, black sumi ink. Um, they have huge brush strokes because they were so large. You can see the brush strokes. So you might have a fragment that contains a bit of an eye or a, a brush stroke going through. And I've been trying to piece together in a more abstract way just how these um, fragments of paper that, that encompass a whole history of an area, how they can be used and repurposed and given a new meaning He'd been piecing these together and patching them and stitching with paper thread into them. And um, my friend Jenny, when she saw one, it, it reminded her of the patterns of the rice fields that we used to see from our flat. So the, the very stitches have, when I'm doing it, I see, see the regularity of the stitches as somehow representing things that I've absorbed from the environment. I love that. And there is a fusion of, of your ideas, of traditional Japanese ideas, all kind of woven into the artwork, which is really beautiful. Well, I know that because we've spoken on the phone before, and I know that you have some hopes and ambitions for the future of paper, and you've now been handed this slight responsibility. <laughs> well, I, I could see that I had been part of textile and paper history. I, I was aware that it was a dying craft. And then last year, seeing it almost at the point of extinction, I felt compelled to find out more, to tell this story to a wider audience and to just celebrate the people that are still alive who've still got first-hand knowledge. So the, the research was one aspect of that. The, the work that I do is another aspect. And um, I I'm, I'm, would really love to, um, to exhibit the work as a dialogue, this dialogue between contemporary practice there was one thing that I saw in Japan, which kind of sort of sums it up. I went to, I think it was No Theatre, and a late lady owl was represented by a folded kimono on the stage. So she was represented by a folded kimono. And I feel that I have lots of things uh, would represent people and places. A particular piece of paper would represent Mr. Anzai. Another piece of paper would represent... Um, Mr. Endo from Shiroishi. And then you have the response of practitioners, myself included, who have all taken that particular technique from a particular area and, and kind of renewed it in their own way and taking it forward in, in a different way. So I would love to co-curate an exhibition or I'm looking for people who could collaborate on a book or a, an exhibition. I'm looking for venues for interest for people to collaborate with. 
especially in the year next year, the 10th anniversary of Fukushima, when we'll be hearing such negative and such awful things about that area, it would be so lovely to have the chance to celebrate the more the craft traditions um, that, that, you know, have been celebrated in the past. It's an area that, that is often looked to as being the kind of cradle of some very traditional techniques. And it would be lovely to um, collaborate and to find venues and people who are able to make this happen and to show contemporary work alongside traditional um, and to give people some idea of this long paper tradition that has inspired so many people. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And Ellie, so for the listeners listening, if if you have been inspired by what Ellie said, you have an interest in Japanese culture, in paper, um, or just you're hoping to kind of curate an exhibition or you want to get involved, where can listeners go to find out how to do that, Ellie, to contact you and also to find out more about what you're up to in your work? Um, I have, I use Instagram. So I have an Instagram account. It's got quite a long name at the moment. It might be shortened in time. But it's Ellie underscore Burkitt, paper and textiles, and a website, eleanorburkitt.com. Um, I'm hoping that some of my research will be published, so that would give a, a wider audience. And post-COVID or even during COVID, I would love to be able to exhibit my work. So those would be the places. I mean, anybody can contact me if they've got a particular interest. Ellie, I'm so enthralled by what you do and uh, you've described it so beautifully. I, I personally feel inspired and if there's any way that I can get involved, then <laughs> I will. But I want the listener to hear that and, and hopefully feel the same way that I do and want to be inspired by what you're doing and, and get involved. Because as you said, this tradition is so beautiful and so important and it can't sort of be left there. It's, it, I want, we want it to have new life, essentially, don't we? Yes, Definitely. Just as an aside, there are there are three main paper making areas that have been designated with UNESCO um, status, but those aren't the kind of areas that I'm interested in, which which are further north. Um, so some areas are still thriving, but um, if you look if you look on a, a map of paper makers in Japan, it looks like there are so many, mm. but really they are just confined to three main areas now. And it's the it's the desire to somehow put the others, keep the others on the map, really keep the others on the map, which is driving me in. And it's 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 definitely a marriage. It's, it, my own work is is so important to me, um, but the but it it talks, it speaks with the research and it goes hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ellie, thank you so much for chatting to me today. I really hope that the listeners get in contact with you. And Ellie, and Burkett is spelt just so that everyone can B-U-R-K-E-T-T. So go and find her on Instagram, send her a message. And yeah, and I wish you the best of luck with these projects. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you. So there you go. That was the very interesting Ellie Burkett talking about paper and Japan. And honestly, I feel like I could have spoken to her for much longer. Now, I also wanted to use a little bit of time that I have to talk about mental health because this is a topic that is really, really close to my heart. And it's something that every single person I know, including myself, has dealt with. Uh, You know, we all have a mental health And sometimes that mental health gets a little bit out of check. And I think with what's going on at the moment, it is almost 
I think people are in the minority if they're not being mentally affected by what's going on in a negative way. And I'm really hoping that the days where we don't talk about our feelings and we suppress feelings and it's a sign of weakness to feel feelings are long long gone and that we are all going through something that is really really difficult in different ways for different people you are absolutely not alone and there are places that you can go um good samaritans is a fantastic organization if you call 116123 uh, they can talk about anything with you any mental health issue you can write to them on the app you can write them a letter you can send them an email you can also reach out to your gp as well and they will be able to direct you to the best place that you can go to seek um health advice on your mental well-being that might be cbt classes that might be talking therapies and i think what i'm trying to say is human to human we are in this together and if you need help there's help out there and maybe if you're not going through something but you know someone that is there are some amazing charities out there that you can support mind charity is an amazing charity it's one that i support and it aims to help people that are going through a particularly difficult time with their mental health um so yeah i just wanted to say that i think it's important to talk about thank you so much for listening i will be back next week with another wonderful fabulous interesting guest for you on art then and now but in the meantime what's your your hands, wear your masks and look after each other.